This week, the DNC is holding its first Democratic primary debates for president. We've got down in Miami two nights, 10 candidates each. I will not list them all for you, but there are so many names, including a a large list, several names that aren't even making. They did not qualify for these two first nights. The next month, by the way, we'll have another set of DNC debates that will be in Detroit. But for now, all attention is down in Miami. I want to bring in Carolyn Fidler, who's the communications director at Daily Coast. She is that's that's a relatively new position for you. Uh, Only a year. It's just been a year. But uh, I want to talk to you about. We're going to get to state politics eventually because you're wasted on national politics. Much too good at talking about state politics. But let's start with this national conversation. For voters who are excited about the debates, for voter, the, the three of them, and all those other people who are less excited and mostly just kind of apprehensive and you know bedwetting, what are we looking for on Wednesday and Thursday nights? What should people expect to see? And more importantly, what kind of expectations can we set for voters who are maybe just now tuning in or maybe are going to tune in in like six to eight months, which is like the normal human thing to do? Right. I mean, normal humans. Love them. Wish I was one. <laughs> um, I can't imagine. Yeah, that. no, I couldn't either. But um, that's why I use the was and not the conditional were because it's just <laughs> not a possibility. Um, Subjunctive at- humor here on at the table. <laughs> Also a grammar nerd, yes. Um, So we're looking at two very different nights of debates uh, in Miami. Uh, The first night, I think everyone reasonably expects Warren to dominate. I think Warren expects Warren to dominate. Um, It's Calling it a a kids' table debate is unfair to her and to many other participants. Um, Like, Inslee's going to bring a very serious uh, climate change conversation. That's very important. Um, uh, Booker is, is, is nothing to sneeze at, especially on a debate stage. He has very good stage presence. Um, but Warren is, is, is the person to, uh, that everyone is going to be measured up against uh, on the first night. Um, the second night is going to be a whole different ballgame um, with, with Biden and Sanders, uh, two of the, depending on which poll you were paying attention to, ostensibly the front runners going up against each other and two very, very different creatures politically. Um, that's going to be quite the fight. And I think everyone else on the second night is going to struggle to get any sort of oxygen. Uh, but on the first night, you know, Warren is going to uh, present her ideas and everyone else is going to try to look as smart as her. <laughs> I, I've been thinking about this from the perspective of a voter who is kind of at the different levels of, of giving a shit, essentially, of, of where we are in this world right now. And I imagine that for people who assume that Biden is inevitable, I would remind them of, like, Rudy Giuliani in 2007 or, you know, Jeb Bush a few years ago. Like, we see these front runners; They do tend to to diminish somewhat. But before we get into the nitty and gritty of who and, and uh, what to expect from individuals, what about policies? Because eventually we're going to know what these questions are, but not until actual debate night unless we have, uh, uh, you know, some kind of advanced knowledge, which is its own separate scandal that the president <laughs> would like me to focus on, but I'm not going to. Um, but but for, seriously, you mentioned Inslee. We know that he's going to be talking about his centerpiece issue, which is, of course, climate change, the environment. Um, that is by no means only his issue what other things can we expect or i would say for your perspective and everyone from the organization that you represent what are you hoping that they talk about because there's got to be something that actually animates democrats gets them moving to the polls what is that going to be 
Uh, well, I think that uh, the it's, it's uh, that's actually an excellent question because the first night with Warren sort of leading the pack there. Um, and without a, a Biden to sort of kind of be the quote unquote centrist in that conversation, I think that especially with voices like Inslee pulling very far to the left on climate change, I think that um, I think they're going to have a lot of really interesting progressive ideas to come out of that first night of debate that they're going to be more you're, it's going to be more of a battle the second night in terms of like like old school versus new school a little bit uh, kind of traditional democratic versus like the things that Sanders has popularized that Warren and other democratic candidates have now, you know, adopted as their own uh, stances at this point. So I think that, I think the first night is going to be the, we're closer to where the democratic base is now. And I think the second night is going to be more of a representation of um, the way that pundits perceive the battle within the base, which isn't really a battle. First of all, how dare you uh, insult my people? That is, uh, that's our word. You can't even use that word, um, uh, the P word there. Uh, I think what's interesting is I'm looking at the first night's lineup, and you've got uh, some people that might try to represent that centrist establishment position, but who probably can't really maintain that mantle. I'm thinking about Congressman Tim Ryan. I'm thinking about Mayor de Blasio, who has so much larger of an estimation of his popularity or, you know, birthright to that position as anybody. I mean, we're talking about a week where Joe Sestak is in the, 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 uh, the, the Pennsylvania, uh, very short term, uh, member of Congress here. Uh, what's the, so the, the people are still coming into this race, which is its own hilarity, but I imagine that they're going to be trying to find – somebody's going to be trying to find that backstop of, like, aren't I the responsible, you know, boilerplate, straight white dude kind of thing that you come to expect when you're looking at not Barack Obama as president of the, of the United States or Donald Trump, I guess. Is someone going to try to find that, especially on that first night? Um, yeah, maybe Ryan is going to try to find that. Uh, Delaney. Delaney, if he's going to try to find anything. Besides someone to pay attention to him and remember that he's running for president, bless his soul. Um, um, you know, Klobuchar might try and she 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 launched with sort of a, a sort of a centristic tack, um, but I think she also understands that's not where anybody wants to be. Anyone who's a Democratic based voter at this point, so I think that she might try and do that centristist thing on Monday. But I don't think it's gonna I don't think it's gonna get anywhere. I don't think anyone's gonna care. We talked about oxygen in the room when you've got Biden and Sanders both on the stage. I, I mean in terms of both literal oxygen and figurative oxygen because both of them are not known for being short-winded. I can imagine between you know Biden's throat-clearing personality and Sanders' kind of equivocating manner of speech where he's constantly bringing in other examples or other things. It's going to be tough for anyone even – I mean, I'm imagining the time moderator finding, having a difficult time. But but then you've got eight other extremely competent people, including uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. You've got Senators Bennett, Gillibrand. You've got Governor Hickenlooper, uh, Senator Harris, as you mentioned a moment ago. I mean, this is not – and then you've got Congressman Swalwell, Andrew Yang. Marian Williamson. Um, it does start to diminish after a certain point. But uh, do you imagine that there's going to be a lot of people vying for kind of third, like the bronze medal of night two? Um, yes and no. I mean, uh, Biden and Sanders are going to, you know, be, be the 
be the one sucking up all that oxygen. But I think that actually provides Harris with a great opportunity to be like, ah, I'm the breath of fresh air here. <laughs> I'm the I brought the mask to to y'all when they're sucking up all the <laughs> all the air in the room. Um, I am I'm not these guys who are, you know, a couple of white guys. And I think she has a real chance to shine on the second night. If we are to to continue this metaphor of oxygen, if we are adjusting our own masks first before we put on the mask of our seatmates, what is the moment right now? Because Democrats are infamously over uh, overprescribed as bedwetters. So what are the things that people are afraid about? I see people sharing articles like Trump's never going to leave the White House, or that you know impeachment's too risky, or and then and then they talk about this and uh, and you know, only Biden is electable. I mean these things are so help me adjust the mask once you've gotten yours on which i think you do i think you know you've you've been getting actual straight oxygen for quite some time what is the uh, amount of oxygen left and are any of these issues surmountable for someone to rhetorically fight against on a very crowded debate stage i think i think uh democrats and, and voters everywhere need to approach this one step at a time. Um, let's not worry about whether or not Trump's going to leave the White House until we actually beat him. <laughs> if, he, if we don't beat him, he's not going to leave the White House. That's just science. Um, in terms of like who's electable, that's that's a garbage. That's a that's a that's a garbage term. Uh, forgive me. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean that. At you. I didn't aim that at you. I like mean, I did say it. So right, but you didn't come up with it. You're not the one pushing that electability narrative, which is crap. Um, it's, that's just, that's just, uh, it's code for like, we need, we need a white guy who centrist. That's why I was apologizing. Actually <laughs> that I want to, I want to be clear. I thought I was apologizing for the political reason, but actually it's because I'm constantly checking my, you know, it's like, it's like overhead bag privilege. And then this is actually large bags that need that they are above 50 pounds. I'm actually paying extra for them. Um, and that's fine. I know that that's, that's how we're going to get reparations, actually. Yeah, I'm not sure why, actually. I think it's because I, it, the altitude is actually making me short of breath. Um, we, but when we're talking about the voters who are looking at what's happening in Miami this week, the national expectation is one set of things. But voters are also coming in. If there's anything that's emblematic of this Trump era of American politics, it's a reminder that not everything is done at the national level. And you, as I mentioned earlier, can talk at some depth for state-level politics, and I would like to do that for a few moments here. Because whether you're in Virginia, and I know that there's, um, there's some uh, gun control measures or, or special sessions soon on gun issues, whether you're in Missouri, Georgia, or any, any number of other states that is looking at restriction of reproductive rights, whether you're talking about these state-level issues, they are percolating into the national attention. What's going on in Oregon, for example? People are paying attention to large state issues that are showing the 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 divergence of Republicans and Democrats even at the state level. So what are you looking at both in terms of uh, from the comms department of Daily Coast, but also as a voter and someone who gives a damn about these things, what, what do you find the most animating? Because Democrats and Republicans, there's some very clear distinctions right now for the voter who's potentially paying attention. Well, the distinctions have been there at the state level for a very long time. Um, and... Um I've been paying attention to this for a very long time, <laughs> but uh, and there's always something happening state, no matter what your issue is. Like there's a there's a state level uh, ramification uh, to it. Um, 
like in Oregon right now, uh, the issue is actually climate change. It's a it's a it's a carbon cap and uh, trade bill that uh, Republicans don't want a vote to be held on, so they just ran away to avoid a quorum. Basically, I, I mean, this is the funny part to me is that it's the market based prescription for climate as a as a solution, and to avoid what used to be a Republican idea to so, to solve this issue. Republicans are now leaving, like 11 of them have crossed the border into Idaho. And it's not just a climate issue now because it's also a, a militia issue because Oregon state Republicans are actually voicing support in an official capacity for the violence that's being threatened, le- legitimately threatened by these, I mean, I would say wackos if that didn't diminish. These are these are domestic terrorists who are holding government hostage and threatening public spaces and lives. I mean, this is insane. No, it, it is bananas. Uh, I mean, legislative walkouts are honestly like a little bit of a time honored tradition. It's not. The, it's not, honestly, it's not the first time it's even happened in Oregon this year. Like a few weeks ago, Republicans walked out in protest of oh gosh, a gun safety measure and something else. And Democrats, even though they have super majorities in both chambers. Yeah, they just said, please come back. We'll give you what you want, even though we were elected as a supermajority in the state. Um, so Republicans came back, and now, of course, they're trying it again. And Democrats get that this time they can't afford to cave. Um, I, probably, Democrats have a supermajority, super but still, without at least two Republicans there, they can't hold any votes on anything in the state Senate, unfortunately. Um, and so as opposed to, you know, fighting things the, the, the old-fashioned way, like holding votes, um, they just, you know, dipset. And as you mentioned, there was uh, that one uh, Republican uh, member who did tell uh, the governor to advise the, the superintendent of police to send bachelors and heavily armed uh, men after him because he wouldn't be a quote-unquote political prisoner, whatever the hell that means. Um, the state constitution does authorize uh, absent members to be brought back. Like, that's... That's legit. It unfortunately says nothing about the uh, genital measuring contests that are taking place (laughs) by members who are deciding that this is the stand that they are willing to make for their, let's call them constituents. Um, But other issues like, for example, reproductive health, access to abortion, these are things that have, we have seen them animate voters on the right for a very long time who have felt this as a real issue in a way that perhaps, and this is me asking you, not telling you that this is how I've, uh, this is how I've perceived it, but I am very open to being wrong here, that it has been less real for some of the voters on the left who assume that we would never get here. And that potentially we, uh, the, the, the moments that we're seeing right now with state legislator, legislatures trying to torpedo Roe, that that moment was not as real for people who were expecting potentially a Hillary Clinton presidency, an easier uh, take on the Supreme Court, et cetera. Am I, am I completely off base by assuming that this was more animating for the right up until maybe this election? No, I think that's right. I think that's correct. I think a lot of people f- took a lot of uh, solace in, uh, in Roe being in existence forever and has been in existence for most many adults, uh, you know, adult lives. Um, but also Republicans in this, at the state level were very smart about kind of chipping away at those rights instead of, like, just trying to get rid of them all at once. So it's a little column A, little column B. Um, when, when you, you know, the frog in the pot of water brought slowly to a boil. 
Um, it's a little, people get kind of used to like having fewer rights and, uh, but that makes it no less dire. And I think that finally this, it's the sense of direness is really hitting home, especially in states like Alabama and Georgia and Missouri and various other places where, um, it is no longer realistically, um, feasible to obtain an abortion. I want to ask you about one other national story, which is, uh, something that, I have tried so hard to avoid even focusing the, the conversation on the president because I feel like Donald Trump, we talked about oxygen in the room, he gets so much for free. But there was one story that broke this week. It was Jonathan Swan over at Axios with a deluge of vetting documents for the um, members of the administration, many of whom are either current or former members of the administration, and all of the red flags that they had compiled. And I bring this story up not to embarrass the administration, not because I don't want to do that, because they're incapable of embarrassment, but because the organization of which you formerly worked, Media Matters for America, was involved in uh, some, it looks like they basically cribbed Media Matters notes for many of these things, which is both hilarious and also sad that people who have the, I assume that the jackbooted people over at, you know, whoever, the FBI, the NSA, have better ideas of what constitutes red flag than what Media Matters uh, puts together. But apparently that's not the case. Can you shine a little bit of a light onto what the hell is happening with this story because I can only imagine that you and former colleagues are enjoying this a little bit more than you probably should. (laughs) Uh, I'm hoping anyway that that's the case. I mean, uh, the FBI's idea of a red flag is going to be different from Media Matters' idea of a red flag. (laughs) Uh, But I can say, uh, um, based on my personal experience working there for, uh, for about two years, uh, is that Media Matters research is of the highest quality. It's basically factually unassailable. So for anyone of any ideological persuasion to rely on it actually makes a lot of sense. I don't care if you're left or right. Their stuff is correct. So if you're going to like sift through their, through their data and their information and try to pull out things that are helpful to you, even if you is the Trump administration, I mean, that's, that's not the worst way to conduct one's business, I suppose. Well, I'm sure they're very grateful for the, uh, for the permission. Now, if they could just get a couple of the bands that they like to sign off on some uh, rally music and some other things, they can just get everyone who disagrees with them to just kind of give them the rights to what they, they've been using for so long. The, re- the other reason I brought up uh, Media Matters is because I know that uh, this week is uh, for you uh, as a colleague of his and also as someone that I've uh, been a big fan of his work for a very long time. Uh, Simon Malloy, is, uh, is, his funeral is this week, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about his work at Media Matters and what he stood for and, uh, and, and kind of this moment. I, I, I know that for people who don't necessarily know this person, it might seem like this is just another Washington person, but if you've enjoyed him, his writing, his work, um, I think he's worth uh, at least asking a little bit about. So hopefully people will uh, forgive the indulgence. I appreciate it. Uh, Simon is just the kind of high-quality human being that you want to be in this business. Um, he is he is smart, clever, but with a gracious heart. Um, and I think that really came across. Sometimes it translated into, into scathing wit, but he also, but he also ha- had a, just a genuine good nature. Um, and he honestly believed that the things like what Trump's doing are, are wrong. And he, you know, worked for Media Matters. Uh, in in pursuance of a, of a larger goal, I think, of just making the world a better place. And um, he left us way too soon, and uh, we all miss him very much. 
I uh, thank you for that because I, again, did not have the pleasure of knowing him personally, but uh, enjoyed a lot of that scathing wit, which was uh, missed in the last few months uh, before he passed as he was kind of uh, less and less available for his uh, very large Twitter following and other places as well, but uh, certainly a lot more than that. For the person who hasn't checked in yet, we've talked about state issues, we've talked about national issues, we've talked about embarrassing Trump stories, essentially the whole gamut of what has existed in the last... I think it's been 10,000 years that this administration has been here. What's the the ray of hope that you have? Because I feel like we can get so bogged down in the the feeling of there's so much, you know, fire hose of news every day and the scandal of yesterday is not even on the front page the, you know, 48 hours later. What would you say for someone who is apprehensive or someone who is looking at this and wondering if they can even bother to be checked in because they don't want to get, it's almost like a relationship. You don't want to get hurt again. Like what, what's the moment for you that you're, do you have that hope? First of all, if you don't, that's okay too, because I mean, we'll just, um, we'll just drink more because, uh, I think that's, that's fine. But in, in all seriousness, what, what is that for you? Because I've looked at it and tried to find these, these glimmers of positivity, even in the worst stories, even in the, you know, terrible kids in cages stories. But I find that it's, it's harder and harder as days go by. It is, it is very difficult. Um, but, uh, the thing that keeps me going is everyone else who is also fighting the good fight. I hate that cliche, but cause but it is an important fight. It's an essential fight. It's a, it's a fight uh, for our own souls and for the soul of the nation. And um, to look around and know that you're not fighting it alone um, and that there's so many different ways to fight it. You don't have to, like, come to D.C. in March to fight it. You can you can volunteer for a local campaign and fight it. You can send some state candidates $5 and fight it. You can do any number of things. And people are all the time, and it's the most gratifying thing to see. Carolyn Fiddler is the communications director at Daily Coast. Thank you for spending some time with me on At the Table. (laughs) Thanks for having me.